Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Bethan Johnson. Bethan is a researcher at Tech Against Terrorism and a doctoral fellow at the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. Thanks for joining us, Bethan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we've got a few things to talk to you about today. I think we'll touch on Buddhism, the stock market, and even rock and roll. But uh, maybe we'll start with Buddhism. You recently published some work about the ways in which white supremacist groups sometimes incorporate aspects of non-Western religion. Of course, people would be familiar with the ways in which some Hindu iconography is incorporated into things, but you've written about how Buddhism is incorporated. Could you speak a bit on that? Yes, that'd be my pleasure. Um, it's it's a work that still actually hasn't been published yet, but is forthcoming and essentially uh, stemmed out of looking at the usernames of some of the people on these social media sites and frequently seeing tags like militant Buddhist or the militant Buddha. And then also recognizing several references uh, to Buddha within some to the Buddha or Buddhism within some of the works of supported neo-fascists. So I started to think, okay, well, what is that about? Why is that happening? It can't just be because all the other usernames were taken and militant Buddhists just happened to be available, but rather there was some sort of signal there. And you're right, many people would know about some of the connections between neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, and certain kinds of distorted Hindu nationalist beliefs or Hindu icons as you mentioned, but not so much about Buddhism. And so some of those links can be seen through even things like the swastika, which obviously has ties to other religious practices, but also has links to Buddhism. But outside of that is an interesting reliance among neo-Nazis and neo-fascists on Buddhism because they see it as sort of occult or esoteric or counter-hegemonic in the West. And so they're very fascinated by things that they think are sort of on the fringe or alternative. So they turn there. And they also rely heavily upon what they interpret as Buddhism. It's very important to distinguish that this is not what mainstream or even the vast, vast majority of Buddhists believe, but their interpretation includes a heavy emphasis on this idea about right action, including a selflessness that allows for violent action. So this idea that this, that your life in this world is sort of uh, transient anyway, that you don't need to have material possessions, that the, there are higher principles to which each uh, human should aspire and, and should act toward. They utilize to encourage people to engage in uh, violence in the name, in the, for the sake of their race, for instance. So it, it helps them, I would argue, encourage audiences to 
disengage with society and to embrace sort of ethno-nationalist or racist beliefs, wherein they can also be so detached they would engage in violence. That sounds like an ideology that would be quite useful to an accelerationist. Indeed. It's, it's very, very helpful in that way. It's all about not thinking with regards to the present, but it's all about looking to the future and the idea of self-sacrifice and sort of higher principles need to go on. And the idea that you might not be around, for instance, to see the aftermath of what you've done, but that would, because it would be done for a higher purpose, it would be for the greater good. And, and thus one should do it. One should be compelled to act. And, and that very much is something that accelerationists require in the very extreme violent beliefs that they espouse. Speaking of esoteric forms of neo-Nazi belief systems, uh, Bethan, you've also written about, uh, a little bit about rock and roll and Nazi infiltration of heavy metal and other forms of uh, Western musics. What have you discovered in looking at the influence of neo-Nazi music on uh, youth culture and on fascist politics? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it was as nice to listen to as normal rock and roll like anyone would expect. It's it's largely in the sort of metal to death metal, which is as, as extreme and unpleasant as it sounds in many ways, with the added benefit of whenever you can distinguish what someone is screaming, that's typically some kind of racial slur or violent act or some something misogynistic or homophobic. But in essence, uh, music is central and has been central to the neo-Nazi and white supremacists more more generally, white supremacist movement for decades. And it's helpful on a couple of different layers. The first one is an ideological one, which is obviously you need when recruiting an individual and keeping them within your ideological bubble, you need to sort of cocoon them in in these beliefs all the time to continue to feed them this constant stream of sort of hateful messages. And so in addition to things like books or images, films, music is a really helpful way to keep people consuming this kind of hateful message. So all of this, you can turn it on in the car or play it for your children or for yourself, various moods, and just helps reinforce all these beliefs. So the lyrics in these are um, very much touting some of the most extremely violent and vile, in my opinion, kinds of content that's available by any kind of terrorist group out there. So it helps ideologically reinforce people. Also, on the other level is financial, which I've written about a few times, which is these events can be quite lucrative for organizers. So if you have a music festival, for instance, those are helpful because you can raise thousands of dollars um, tens of thousands even, hosting a multi-day event, which is great for you because you can use that to then go purchase things that would help uh, in the coming race war, for instance, but also um, helps because it shows people who attend the event that they're not alone, that actually these beliefs that they hold are not so noxious, allegedly, that they are not embraced by other people. So it gets music gets people together, gets people gathered and excited and meeting up. Um, which is part of what helps recruit young people as well. Because many, in many cases, what we're seeing when young people join this movement is a desire to find a community, to find themselves in a community. They often experience uh, isolation or a sense of being an outsider or, or a loser. And so when they go to these events or they listen to this music and they find fellow fans online, they can feel connected and part of a community which draws them further in and makes uh, them particularly vulnerable uh, to further radicalization. 
You've written in a little detail about the use of music, various musical genres in the German context. And I was wondering, because one of the uh, key bands that have performed in Germany and elsewhere and in Europe uh, is a band from Melbourne called Fortress. And it's just in the last few years that they've they've undergone periodic revivals, but in the last few years they've toured Europe and they're able to generate an audience of thousands in places like Germany and elsewhere. They have a very, they don't play really here in Melbourne or Australia, I guess because the scene is so small. But I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit about the international connections that this milieu generates and um, what does that say about the spread of neo-nazi ideology through these through these musics yes so fortress playing is a great example of the sort of transnational element that is built into global neo-nazism or white supremacism more general generally so i would say that many of the larger events that are being held not just in germany though germany has sort of wellspring of them many of these multi-day events are international, not just in the sense of having people traveling from various countries around the world to attend, but also having bands from all across the world play. So some of the big highlights for these events are the fact that you would find, for instance, an Estonian band playing next to a Brazilian band, playing next to an Australian band, playing after uh, an American band. So that is something that is extremely common in these uh, larger events. They are more expensive to put on. So often they happen less frequently than sort of small scale events, but that is why they also draw very large crowds is because um, individuals will want to see their favorite bands play. Not every band does do larger sort of tours across Europe, for instance. So this might be the uh, only time they can see them, or it might be the revival, as you noted in your question. Some of these bands have sort of disbanded, but will come back together every so often. So people will invest in, in Go um, if they see that their band is playing. And I think that the international nature of the lineup to many of these events signals something in particular, which is not just the desire to net more people from around the world to show up to these events, but a real commitment by organizers and by bands themselves to show the international nature of their belief system, that this isn't something that is limited to the country in which the event is being held, but really is a global movement. And that is ideologically significant for them. They're trying to prove that white people will band together across the world and show their supreme nature and and ascend to a dominant position. So there is a fiduciary element to it but there is also an ideological element to why they have them, have them and hold, hold events this way. I guess between ticket sales, merch and alcohol and things, these events would be quite lucrative. Is there any sort of a intergroup uh, violence relating to these events in terms of who controls the cash flow? So you are correct. There are They are exceptionally lucrative. Some of the largest ones have roped in tens and I think in a couple of cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years. And that comes through some very, what one might call sneaky or um, to lack of a better word, clever practices, which is things like purchasing food and drink and then upselling it for six times the cost it would be at a normal store or what it was to purchase. But because people are just desperate to get get food and particularly drink, particularly alcohol, they'll pay whatever the fee is. In my experience, the struggles 
that often come with regards to event planning and organizing don't necessarily come as often or at least are not as widely publicized with regards to who's hosting the event um, and thus who's raking in the cash, but has more to do with how are the bands being compensated, how much is too much to charge someone for a VIP ticket or um, how much money should an individual be bringing with them? And and if they run out of money, what do they do if they still want to attend events? I've seen less of the overt sort of fractiousness with regards to event coordinators, let's, let's say Um, those aren't as frequently discussed as tensions within bands or tensions among leaders of groups outside of the sort of event planning context. Speaking of the political infrastructure that sustains these movements, events and projects in Australia, the, the Hammerskins play quite a key role in the neo-Nazi uh, music network. I understand that they're banned in Germany and state repression plays a role in limiting audiences and uh, the capacity of these movements to grow. What's your kind of, given that this movement or this ideology moved, emerged in this context in the uh, late 1980s, what's been your sense of the historical progress of the movement since then and what situation do you think it is in now, also given the, the fact that the internet has, has emerged to allow for the, the free distribution of music? It's not necessary for someone to actually you know, purchase this music in order to listen to it. Uh, yeah, so I think there are many factors in terms of the development, and it's hard to to say in some with some regards because COVID has definitely thrown a wrench into the planning of many things. But to sort of excise that from the question for a minute, I would say that the role of uh, music festivals has decidedly shifted in the last few years. They were incredibly lucrative, and some some countries would host tens or hundreds of small to large events across a single year. Um, and the, the largest ones being things that people would put on their calendars and were excited about as annual festivals, for instance. Um, that has become less the case as technology has allowed for people to share music um, without purchasing CDs or people can download videos they've taken from a live concert to put online. It's somewhat complicated by the fact that it's not as easy to get get a handle on um some of the extremist, the most extreme, most violent music uh, for free on things that mainstream musicians like would use, such as Spotify or iTunes. You're not going to find them necessarily there. But SoundCloud and other places are places you could still find this kind of music. I would say, though, that there has been a degree to which some of the larger events have managed to still draw in crowds. And that's because they've been able to successfully do these revival events for one thing, where they bring back bands who are popular in the 80s and the 90s, but also they've sort of bundled them together with other events, particularly fight nights or MMA, uh, mixed martial arts type events or training, physical training, so that people feel like they're getting a whole experience that makes it worth it. Or alternatively, for people who were growing up in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s who are starting to have children, they also host sort of quote unquote family friendly events. I think Southern Cross Hammerskins are quite well known for some of their sort of alleged uh, family friendly food and drink events uh, with music involved. But definitely the the coming of the internet has has forced people to reconsider or event planners and managers to reconsider some of how they go about their business. But at the same time, 
the push to have these people deplatformed and to otherwise sort of limit their mainstream exposure still allows for a certain degree of marketability for these events and for CDs and more so MP3s and things like that. But it does, it has cut into revenue in a particular way. And with COVID putting restrictions on mass gatherings of any variety, that has made it even harder. And whilst some on the extreme right or far right don't necessarily believe that COVID is real, they are in many cases more cautious with regards to gathering in public just to avoid the police pressure and subsequent issues with the law. You're listening to Yena Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Bethan Johnson about terrorism and tech. More broadly, could you speak to some of the other ways besides music that uh, far-right terrorism is financed? Oh, yeah, of course. So one of the sort of more old school, if you want to use a term like that, um, methods that gets used for financing is the classic sort of tithing system or membership fees. Those aren't particularly popular anymore, but certain groups still will require some some degree of payment um, in terms of membership. So that will be one way of financing. Another will be through training. So again, there's this strong emphasis on the need to physically prepare oneself for the end times or these coming race wars, as accelerationists would put it. So purveyors of those kinds of preparation, be that uh, hand-to-hand combat or with weapons training of various kinds. So that would be another way that individuals could make money is by purporting to train people for these coming race wars. Um, Alternatively, some people are now capitalizing on the doomsday prepper-esque style of things wherein they will sell people bunkers or materials they would need for a bunker to survive a race war or an apocalypse. Um, And so that's another marketable method. And then I would say also uh, people just using and buying and trading in in cryptocurrency, that kind of uh, fringe market exists as well, wherein they'll try to hop on the, the train of Bitcoin or any of these other cryptocurrencies and then sell them when they're most marketable to make some money. I don't think they're alone in trying to uh, harness the Bitcoin bubble. Have you observed that they've had much success in, uh, uh, I guess, day trading? It's hard to tell quite how successful any of them are in the long term or the short term on these things in part that's designed. It's designed that way because of the sort of essence of what cryptocurrency is and and the um, difficulty in tracking it. I wouldn't say that many individuals uh, have been particularly successful um, at this as far as we know. We know that it is used, especially as many banks and other forms of uh, payment outlets are restricting users who promote these kinds of belief systems or who are linked to terrorist groups. They are going on these more cryptocurrency sites. Uh, But we haven't seen a lot of evidence wherein a large proportion of individuals on the far right are making money so much as spending money or sort of just generally floating about in the in the space. But I wouldn't say there are a lot of people that I study who have made any kind of fortune that you'd hear about thus far. Uh, like its sister acronym CVE, uh, CTF or counterterrorism financing has probably been largely focused on Islamist terrorism 
for quite some time and is now having to sort of reckon with uh, having to deal with far-right terrorism. Do you think that there are areas where CTF needs to be improved? I mean, CTF is incredibly difficult, especially in recent years. And I think the reality is that in many cases, in order to engage in, in a terrorist attack, one needs to do as little as renting a, a van or owning a knife or purchasing a gun or ammunition as one might already have either of those items or any of them. So it can be incredibly difficult for individuals to use CTF uh, as a sort of preventative measure. It's not the same as looking for individuals who purchase allegedly like fertilizer to build a bomb and, and, and things like that. So it can be quite difficult. I do think that while there are some degrees of overlap between how uh, those on religiously or those engaged in religiously motivated terrorism and those on uh, the far right for ideological reasons, how they spend money or transact financially. So I think there there's some degree in which we can use what is being used to study ISIS or Al Qaeda, for instance, and their financial actions can be used to study groups on the far right. But I do think there are some distinctions that are significant. And we need to spend some time really thinking about the extent to which CTF is is there not as a preventative measure, but more to help draw out and to learn about the connections and how money is being used to do things like purchase land or purchase weapons for future trainings for these groups, rather than trying to see if we can guess which individual is going to engage in a terrorist attack based off of their purchases. Well, that would be nice and we should still do that. I think that in many cases, CTF will find a great deal if they look for how individuals are spending the money and and work from that construct. You recently wrote a piece uh, about what the radical right has learned from the GameStop squeeze. Maybe you, you could just briefly explain what the GameStop squeeze was and then could you tell us what did the radical right learn from it? Ah, uh, yes, the GameStop squeeze. Uh, as a child of two economists, my parents will be thrilled that I have to explain this or attempt to explain it and highly amused. Um, essentially, the GameStop squeeze, uh, squeeze was a phenomenon that basically began on Reddit, in which a number of individuals saw that some hedge funds were engaging in a, a financial practice in relation to the stock price of GameStop. Um, and it was sort of declining rapidly. And what they did was they got together and purchased and drove the price up of GameStop to an inflated rate. It was worth, in theory, much, it was purported to be worth much more than it was actually worth in terms of its assets. And they did this and that caused these hedge funds and, and some of larger um, financial actors to lose a great deal of money in the process. Wildly simplifies things, but that's the essence of it was it was a kind of David versus Goliath style narrative in which individual small scale investors beat out larger, more experienced buyers and sellers when they punish them essentially for trying to drive GameStop's uh, stocks very low. Instead, they took them and inflated them quite high. And so GameStop, the GameStop squeeze was something that individuals on the far right were very optimistic about because ideologically, they have many feelings about, well, who, who runs these hedge funds, who runs these banks in their narrative? It's often Jews. And so anything that would harm such institutions would harm their ultimate enemy, of the Jews. But outside of that, it also showed them the degree to which you could mobilize individuals online uh, in a kind of populist style 
vendetta or quest to to damage a high playing or a high high profile financial actors and, and they took a great deal of optimism in that and for a while if you managed to really get on the cusp or on the crest of things with regards to GameStop uh, before its prices went down again um, you could make a lot of money so if if any members of the far right had been able to successfully uh, sort of gameplay what was going on, they could make a significant amount of money. We don't necessarily have evidence at the moment of who made the most money and how this all panned out, but uh, it does signal in the future the ability of actors to sort of band together online and make massive ripple effects in uh, the market and potentially make money. I suppose that the GameStop thing in particular had some cultural resonance because it involved gaming. I've seen other sort of attempts to replicate this with silver and gold uh, recently that don't seem to have acquired the same cultural cachet. Do you think that uh, they will be able to replicate that again? I think you're right. I think there was something particular about the combination of GameStop, which would have been well known to many people on Reddit, which is where this sort of initial push for or this this squeeze um, and surge happened was among Reddit users and probably the Venn diagram of individuals who go to GameStop and individuals using Reddit sees a large amount of overlap. So I do think it was able to mobilize particularly strongly because of that sort of shared experience or like of GameStop. And I do think we have seen attempts to do gold and silver and other things that have not succeeded. We've also seen attempts to replicate it within the GameStop stock more than once, with not the same degree of success, though some, I believe. And I I do think that it will be difficult to replicate. It will be interesting to see if people do make that attempt. I know that regulators in several countries are, are, or at least in the United States, there was a lot of discussion about generating regulation or having discussions about how to prevent this kind of uh, thing from happening in the future, because it did have such shockwaves for the rest of the economy for a brief period of time at least. I just think it, it will be very interesting to see if it is something that could be replicated because at the moment it doesn't appear as if that would be the case, at least not to anywhere near the extent that it was um, and not as led by the far right, even though there is a global nature to it. I think that the far right would need to somehow convince other people to join this bandwagon, but it does have a very strong populist anti-establishment narrative to it. So that is the the constant threat is the ability to play up this sort of anti-establishment, anti-government, anti-big bank narrative that exists in many countries, especially after 2008, and use that to their advantage. Along with uh, money, movements also need bodies. And you've written about the perhaps worrying trend that uh, extreme right movements are increasingly, it seems, concentrating upon recruiting teenage boys. Can you talk a little bit about how does that manifest and why is it important to pay attention to? Yeah, so we know um, that this is happening and people have long worried about the recruitment of uh, young people to various terrorist or extremist groups. We've seen it um, with regards to religiously inspired extremism and terrorism, and now on the far right as well. And the problem is particularly concentrated on boys, but there are girls who participate as well. But to speak specifically to young boys, the threat comes in many cases from the ability of fellow teens who've already been radicalized, as well as adults, uh, to put forward narratives about the far right that 
speak to what one might call sort of teenage angst and confusion and feelings of isolation. So um, narratives that are put out on social media or um, online in other spaces or gaming on gaming platforms is one that says, if you feel left out or excluded or misunderstood, I want to understand you. I think that you're worth it. You're not a loser. People, this mainstream society, which embraces multiculturalism and tells white boys they can't be proud to be white or to be a boy and they have to comport with this new PC culture. We won't make you do that. If you come join us, you'll be in this sort of brotherhood of young men. And that can be incredibly appealing to individuals who are experiencing isolation or tension in the family home and or, tr- and or trouble at school. So that's how in many cases they initially rope individuals in to these movements is by playing to their vulnerabilities, playing to the to the sort of weaknesses that come from being young and seeking to figure out how you fit in the world. And this is a real concern for several reasons. Uh, Again, I talked about the sort of threshold uh, to commit an act of terrorism as being relatively low, one needing only a weapon of some kind, which could be easily purchased or already owned in terms of a car or a knife. And so in many cases, looking for young people makes sense for the far right because they are they have all the equipment they need they're intellectually and ideologically quite vulnerable to radicalization and they also don't necessarily have as many deterrents from engaging in violence themselves so they don't have potentially jobs that they love that they'd like to keep doing they may not have a girlfriend or children that they would want to stay with and not risk of future years with. They might not be close with their family members or they may not have many friends. So young people are incredibly vulnerable to those kinds of things and at the same time, incredibly well poised to engage in violence. And we can see that also in the lessons we learn from in the United States, all of the young people who have engaged in school shootings and other things that young people can be incredibly successful in fatal violence. So the far right is looking to sort of expand into that genre or expand into that demographic and play into that. And and I think that that will be a real problem. And even if individuals in their teenage years do not engage in violence or terrorism, they in many cases could engage in smaller hate crimes. But if they don't engage in sort of mass terror acts, but they do reach adulthood, they might be poised to do so then. So they would be ideologically even more entrenched after being exposed to these narratives for many years. But also they would be poised to have more children. So they would go on and and you can see that that can happen, that young people then are raising the next generation of young neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, white supremacists that are born into the movement and thus are very predisposed to believe in this from a young age. And that will create a real problem for society. I had a follow-up question about young people, and I just wanted to quickly Google uh, something to get a fact straight. So I Googled 13-year-old neo-Nazi, and way too many stories came up. One I was specifically thinking of was uh, there was a group in Estonia, I think, uh, an offshoot of Atomwaffen that was actually led by a 13-year-old. wonder if you could speak to what that means or why why something like that could happen, that a, an international neo-Nazi group would be led by someone so young. Yes, I think you're uh, you're referring to Fuhrer Creek Division, um, which was based out of was originally purported to be established by a 13 year old Estonian boy, um, though 
the sort of fact set of that is difficult to know because I believe according to Estonian law, he is actually too young to face charges for this. That's how serious it is with regards to the age. And there are many individuals actually, I believe there was a prosecution recently in the United or in the United Kingdom in which someone was quite young uh, at the time of their arrest for these similarly related terrorist issues. And I think that young people are able to be not just foot soldiers, but leaders in this online space for a couple of reasons. One of them is because as opposed to meeting face-to-face, where in many cases it would be very obvious that the person who's attempting to recruit you is 13 or 14, online, they can lie about their age and they often do. So you don't know, people didn't realize how young this boy was, or many of these boys are, when they go online because they promise that they're over 16 or they promise that they're over 18 and they write uh, and read as if they were to a certain extent with regards to their vocabulary or things of that nature. So they can sort of mask themselves and hide their age in a way that isn't possible in or wouldn't have been possible in previous eras. And so that does allow for that to happen. And the other thing is young people are incredibly tech savvy. They have grown up in many cases, younger teens with the internet, with um, access to a computer, with access to gaming platforms that can be used to recruit. So they have the experience, they have all the equipment. uh, And once they've been recruited, they have the ideology to go forth and spread that message. And so in many cases, they're the best poised to set up these groups or to be leaders or major contributors to this kind of movement or these kinds of movements. And they can connect online quite easily. Um, So I think that those are all factors in in why young people are also particularly appealing is they've got the the tech savvy and they also have the time. They're, They're interested in reading, especially during lockdown now with school being as it is. There's been a lot of recruitment for young people, and that's in part because they can't go out with their friends, so they find friends online. They read all these radical books online, um, and then they they go make their own groups, little groupsicles or group cells, where they can promote some of the nastiest ideas that you'll find anywhere online or otherwise. Earlier this year, for the first time, the Australian government prescribed a neo-Nazi terrorist organisation, uh, Sonnenkrieg, which was related to uh, various other groups that were produced largely online. And the Australian government's also presently conducting an inquiry into extremism and radicalism. In terms of the, I guess, uh, law and policy to begin with, what do you think are the factors that should determine or shape uh, an inquiry of this sort? And what have you identified in your work as being the kind of key areas in which groups like this develop the ways in which perhaps there's been a a lack of intervention or other problems inherent in approaching the idea of extremism and radicalisation online in particular. Policy around this has been something that's been quite contentious both within the policymaking community and in my experience among academics and other observers of these these groups because individuals have their own uh, beliefs about, well, what constitutes terrorism as compared to extremism? Is it the case that if a group is a terrorist group in one country, it needs to be a terrorist group um, as defined all over the world? So for instance, there there's no consistency with regards to how 
far right groups are are designated as terrorist groups among even the five eyes, let alone the global community. So you have groups that have been designated as terrorists. For instance, I believe Canada designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist group uh, earlier this year, but the Proud Boys have a presence in the United States and in, in uh, Australia. And Australia, for instance, has not designated it as a terrorist group. And for some, that's caused a problem. And so that is a major issue. I think uh, each country will make those determinations about what constitutes a, a terrorist group as opposed to an extremist group differently. Um, some of those thresholds have to do with violence, either threatened or actualized. And there are other elements with regards to um, how helpful it is to have that designation of terrorist in terms of being able to police these belief systems differently. With regards to my opinion on, on important uh, markers that were something that might set apart an extremist from a terrorist. Those things have to do in particular, in my mind, with the push for violence and, and how a group encourages audiences to engage in violence in the various ways. So not just through sort of terrorist attacks, but through hate crime and hate crimes and other, other related forms of um, interpersonal violence uh, or violence against women. So I think those are major factors that need to be considered. Um, and I do think, in my opinion, there needs to be more discussion about the creation of a more universal definitions of what is a terrorist group so that the five there is consistency among the five eyes or within the EU or within any number of international sort of treaties or groups, because it does make a difference when there isn't this degree of shared vocabulary with regards to what's a terrorist and what who is who is a terrorist and who is not and that that needs to be simplified and i believe that that's much more governments are much more on the same page with regards to religiously inspired uh terrorism and, and there is a greater degree of overlap in terms of what groups are designated in t- in regards to religiously motivated terrorism, but that just hasn't been the case yet. And that may just be because lots of uh, governments have been extremely reticent to designate anything on the far right as terrorists. And now they're waking up in the aftermath of the Christchurch shootings, but also a number of other shootings in the United States to that issue. Uh, Just finally, Bethan, could you please explain what tech against terrorism is? So tech against terrorism is something I'm really proud to be, um, working with this is an organization that has really been able to see the degree to which the expansion of these uh, terrorist ideologies and and narratives have been the result of a boom in in technological advancement. So the degree to which social media and various other forms of online spaces and otherwise have been used to spread terrorist narratives. So my role within Tech Against Terrorism is one of uh, seeking to basically find right-wing terrorist material online. And then I basically create a, a, a report that is sent to a tech company that says, this is terrorist content that is on your platform. It's terrorist as de- designated by these countries. And they then can take that report and choose to take down the file. Or in some cases, they uh, they don't because they have altering def- their... Um, definition of what they want to keep on their site is one that's different from maybe what other sites have. But basically, Tech Against Terrorism's job is to inform tech companies when terrorist materials 
are being disseminated on their sites and to help them identify it quickly so that it can be taken down if they wish. Um, and there are lots of great future projects that will be helpful for individuals who want to study the terrorist movement. So it's not just about the far right. They also deal with religiously inspired terrorism as well. But there's also being work done in terms of collecting data on how these terrorist groups use um, technology to promote their narratives that will be helpful for researchers in the years to come. But that is what we're trying to do is basically to cut off the use of many tech platforms um, as sources of strength for terrorist groups and sources of recruitment for terrorist groups. Well, that's all we've got time for. If people want to read more of Bethan's stuff, bethanjohnson.com. And she is also on Twitter at bethanjohnson6. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. All right, Andy, we'll catch you next week. See you then. month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone, and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio.